still have winter here. We went to Keeneland yesterday, sat in a box seat, watched guys gamble and watched horses run. It was a wonderful experience, and they said it's going to be 85 today. It wasn't. <laughs> have you ever had a day like this? Guy got up and uh, went to the hospital, visited a friend. His friend was in a full body cast. He said, ooh, you look really bad. And the guy said, not too bad. I'm still alive. That's good. Not real good. I'm in a body cast. That's bad. Well, not real bad. After saving all my life, I was able to buy an airplane. That's good. Well, not real good. I didn't have enough money left to buy fuel. That's bad. Not too bad. I had enough fuel to get up. That's good. Not too good. I didn't have enough fuel to stay up. That's not good. Well, it wasn't too bad. I had a parachute on the plane. That's good. Not real good. The parachute wouldn't open. That's really bad. Not too bad. There was a haystack below. That's good. Not real good. There was a pitchfork in the haystack. Ooh, that's bad. Not real bad. Uh, I missed the pitchfork. That's great. Not too great. I missed the haystack, too. <laughs> you ever had a day like that? Sundays they're running packs. I want to ask you to do something before we get started. Because y'all, y'all, you know, I was so glad this morning at the end when you had the blessing. Because I thought the blessing is the only time you ever get Presbyterians to raise their hands in church. We Presbyterians are a stiff lot, aren't we? I do a tour, two tours every year to Scotland, and the Scottish are a doer, people. Smile a little. Don't show a lot of emotion. Very careful, very proper, very stiff, except when they're on the golf course or have a glass of scotch in their hand. And, and it seems to me that a lot of Presbyterian personality goes, comes from Scotland as well as our theology. So I want to ask you to do something. For all, the, Bible, the psychologists say you need five hugs a day to be healthy. Have you had your five hugs yet? There's a lady sitting here smiling. Are you the, are, are you the admiral? Well, you know, my son is a graduate of Annapolis. Did you go to Annapolis? Okay, but anyway, I, I'm sure an admiral's hugged his wife five times. But I want to ask you to do something. I want you to find five different people, and I want you to hug them or shake their hand. Some of you aren't into hugging. That's okay. Shake their hand. I inherited a church in Naples, about 150 people, mostly Dutch Reformed Calvinists. And we did not hug. So I instituted a deal. We're going to hug five times a day because I wanted us because, because everybody wrote on their deal the most unfriendly church I've ever been to. And so I wanted to get them friendly. So we, we, we started a five hugs a day program. Now, a lot of people got really upset about that. People emailed me. There were actually people who quit the church over that. We're not into hugging. We don't think it's a godly thing to do. And I said, hey, I could be worse. I could be St. Paul. I could be asking you to kiss each other. But I'm not doing that. I'm just asking you to give each other a hug. So if you're just a handshaker, that's okay. Or if you just give a good dramatic stare, that's okay. <laughs> but what I want to ask you to do is stand up in Lexington this morning on this cold, cloudy morning and give five different people something of love from you to them, okay? Come on, do that before we get started. Okay. You clearly run out of things to say. <laughs> this will fill an hour. I like it. It's a good rule. It is. Yeah. My son-in-law, Naval SEAL, retired as a captain. His father is a vice admiral. Okay, good. Did you all feel better about that? I saw some of you older guys hugging. I know you're from the Woodstock generation. 
I want to say to all young men, don't do that with somebody you're not married to. Uh, I notice guys always do this. You ever notice how guys do this when they hug? <laughs> Women don't do that. Just guys do that. And I know what it is. I'll promise you, they're going, I'm not gay. I'm not gay. <laughs> Honestly, that's why guys hug that way. And so what I want to share with you, as, so we came to Naples, and, and we were there 16 years. I'd been with the media, had a ministry, doing Bible studies, people like Sylvester Stallone, Tony Curtis. Now, this would tell what generation you're from, Tony Curtis, um, June, Jane Collins, or Jane, um, and uh, not Jane Collins, but um, yes, Joan. And, and so many other people, Placido Domingo and others, and, and God sent me to New York to minister and Hollywood to minister. And then I went to the smallest church in the world because God called me there down in Naples, Florida, God's great, gate, uh, God's great waiting room at the time. It's changed since. It's, it's, a, it's an exploding area, an area of great wealth where people come, mostly from the Midwest. If you want to live with people from the Midwest, you go on the west coast of Florida. If you want to live with people from New York and New Jersey, you go on the east coast. So I like the west coast. Uh, and, um, and, and, and I was depressed after the first week I was there, or two weeks after I was there, because I said, you know, basically what people wanted was for, for us to preach a good sermon on Sunday morning, get them out to beat the Baptist to the buffet, and tee off by two. And basically, this was the day for people in Naples. Get up at 7 o'clock, have your brand, go for a walk, come home, get in your golf cart, go down to the, to, to the course, play nine holes of golf, have a half sandwich and soup, play gin rummy or cribbage until 3, go to the doctor, go to the early bird special at 4.30, go home to watch Fox News at 6 o'clock until you're so angry you can't stand it and go to bed and get up the next day and do the same thing. And, and I was depressed about that. I thought, God, why did you put me here with all these senior citizens? Now, there's 16 high schools in the greater Naples area too, but we weren't reaching them. And it, my heart began to ache. Why am I here? And then God revealed to me, you're sitting on the greatest treasure chest in the world. People with age and time and maturity and resources. And you can take these people and change the world. And so I began to preach a new message. It's not time to retire, it's time to refire. That we have a responsibility to the next generation. And so just last, two weeks ago at our church at Naples, uh, there were 2,500 people and last year they reached 2 million people with the gospel and 160,000 people came to know the Lord and everybody at Covenant Church, we're no longer a cruise ship or a battleship. Everybody has a place of ministry, either in town or overseas. It has been the most exciting phenomena to see. And so, now, and so I, I turned my church over to my 35-year-old assistant. We had a three-year transitional plan. And last year, I got to retire. Everybody says, Have you re how's your retirement? I'm not retired. I've just refired. I'm going all over the world and everywhere with a new message that I want to share with you today. A message that I began to think about when I was having breakfast with one of my good friends, Senator Marco Rubio. And Senator Marco Rubio said something that struck me. He said, there's a lot of talk about the administration today, where we are, where we're going as a country. And he said, we've got it all wrong. We don't need to be looking at today. We need to be looking at 20 years from now.
Because 20 years from now, the millennial generation will be controlling the levers of society. This generation that's being taught in the university, that's being shaped by the social media of our day, the generation, uh, the millennial generation, we'll talk about that in just a moment, uh, Generation Z, millennial generation about 1980 on, Generation Z from about 2000 on, and to combined, these two generations make up 130 million people in America. You don't think this isn't a rabbit going down the snake. If you don't think that 20 years from now, this is going to be a different place, then you're not watching what's going on in the social media. You're not watching what's going on in the universities. You're not watching what's happening to our children. Vastly different generation. My friend Marco Rubio made another statement that I think is profound, and it's this statement. I'm hoping I'm going to write. Whoops. How can I go back? There you go. Never has there been a time when more generations with distinctly different worldviews have inhabited the same space at the same time. Never in history. I think that's part of the polarization we're dealing with in America today. And um, so I wanted to share those five generations. Not many of them left. I'm not sure there's anybody here that's of the greatest generation. We're losing 2,000 a day. Very few are left. That's my father's generation. And each of these generations have been shaped by something in their childhood. Something that shaped their society changed everything. What do you think it was that was the great profound event that the greatest generation dealt with? If you say Pearl Harbor, you would be partly right, but you wouldn't be right. And every one of you that were raised by the greatest generation, every baby boomer here knows what you heard about every night at dinner, every time you went to school, you felt like you lived through it yourself. <laughs> and that's what happened in 1929 when the stock market crashed and plunged America into the Great Depression. It shaped that generation. And that generation was so worried about security and safety and having plenty that they unfortunately gave birth to the baby boomer generation and that affected the baby boomer generation. The next generation is the silent generation born between 1927 and 1945. These were the men and women who fought the Korean War. They, they, some of them fought in the early years of the, of the Vietnam War. What do you think shaped that generation? Pearl Harbor. It shaped that generation. It changed the world forever. It changed America forever. America went from being one of the greater nations of the world to be the superpower of the world. It shaped them. And the Cold War that followed. The baby boomers, what shaped our world? What's the most profound thing? If you ask a baby boomer, where were you on, what will that baby boomer hear? Where were you when John F. Kennedy was assassinated? It, Camelot died, America began to change. But that baby boomer will also remember the whole Woodstock movement. When everyone went to San Francisco with a flower in their hair, not everybody, but I did. My hair was down to here, I had a beard, I had platform shoes that made me about six foot eight, and um, I, had, I had beads, and, and I marched with Stokely Carmichael. James Hat Brown, many of you don't remember who they were, uh, black power people. My dad thought I'd lost my mind, and um, he had spent five years in World War II, and he couldn't imagine anybody with hair as long as mine was, and so forth. 
and then everything changed. And that's, that. well, I'll go to the next generation, Gen X. How many Gen Xers are there here? A lot of Gen Xers here. Then Gen X was shaped uh, by, at the beginning of their world, as everything changed for the baby boomers, 1968. You remember what happened in 1968? Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Martin Luther King was assassinated. At Altima, the flower movement died. Altima, great concert in California. Nick, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones hired the Hells Angels to protect them. The Hells Angels went into the crowd and killed several people. And every demographer will tell you that was the end of the flower movement. Detroit erupted into riots not long afterwards. Charles Manson and we saw the ugly side of the communes and, and everything changed after that. And the baby boomers went from the people who were gonna change the world and bring in love and peace and a whole new morality to people who got caught up in the 1980s and 90s in a, in, in a, in a drive for and an acquiring of material wealth and, and everything changed. Generation X was born after that. The Generation X, what do you think shaped Generation X besides that? I would say Watergate. Watergate changed that culture. A disillusionment with government. Uh, Gen X were people who grew up in slasher movies, Nirvana. They um, are the ones who are the um, parents mostly of the Generation Z, those born after 2000, and they live to make sure that their kids are safe and secure. More than anything else, they're safe and secure. We'll get to that generation in a moment. Next generation, the millennial generation. What do you think shaped the millennial generation? How about 911? Profound shaping. You ask me where were you in November of 1963, and I'll tell you where I was the day John F. Kennedy was killed. I ask a, a, a millennial, where were you? And they can, they, on the day of 911, and they can tell you. But even more profound for the millennial generation than 911, which of course introduced the world to a whole new realization of global terrorism, uh, was the year 2006. What happened in 2006? The whole economic system of America cratered. And now we were introduced to global issues. And, and kids who, who came out of college with dreams of the big job, those dreams collided with reality. And the millennial generation, I call it the generation of innocence lost. And then the, this next generation, Generation Z, we're not totally sure about Generation Z yet. Many of them are still toddlers and some are still in grade school. But what do you think shapes that generation more than anything else? If you watched the media after Parkland, if you watched that that, that, that thing that CNN did where, where the kids from Parkland got together and the Senator Rubio and Senator Ben Nelson of Florida got together, you heard the same thing again and again from the kids. Guarantee that we will grow up safe. Guarantee that we won't be killed. Guarantee that we'll have a safe and secure world. And I thought one of the most interesting questions from the kid who said, can you guarantee to my friend that he'll grow up safe so he can grow, go to join the Marines? <laughs> I thought that was an interesting statement, to grow up safe so he can go to Afghanistan and get killed, okay? And so 
We are living in generations with very different social values. And, and, and if you stay with me, I want to get you in the word too during the Sunday school hour. Uh, I will ask you a question. What do you think is the greatest crisis facing this, these two generations, the millennial and Generation Z? What do you think are the, two, the greatest crisis facing that generation? What do you think? Now, this is too big a group to have group discussion. But some of you would say truth. Some of you would say morality. Some of you would say the national debt, and all those things would be true. But all the demographers who study this, and by the way, it's a great science because you have to study these generations if you want to sell products, and I guarantee you, uh, Mr. Zuckerberg knows these generations well. And by the way, as one who's on the inside of the Facebook movement, on the inside of social media, that man lied through his teeth and half of what he said to the Congress the other day. But if you want to know, they know. So do the people that are running for president and Senate. They know these generations and how to reach these generations, and they're all different. But so what do you think is the greatest crisis? I'll tell you what every demographer knows. An unprecedented crisis of self-worth and of affirmation. I don't know who I am. Well, let me tell you what um, a writer in the New York Times who said, watch out, millennials, the Gen Z is on its way, said this, this is the millennials traumatized by 911 and its aftermath. Millennials are a generation of self-doubt, self-focus, flailing financially in a real world as expectations of dream job collide with reality. They are brash, narcissistic, entitled, insecure, and self-doubting. Theirs is a world of innocence lost. And no wonder they're brash, narcissistic, entitled, and self-doubting. They are the children of the baby boomers of my generation, which would be the second most entitled generation that ever lived in the earth, probably. At least my greatest generation father would have said that. <laughs> Alex Williams, New York Times. It's a great article. Watch out, the millennials, Gen Z is coming. And so let me ask you about Gen Z. He says this about, they are the first generation. Uh, let me go back one. If I can go back one. Here we go. Gen Z has inherited the seismic changes that caught the millennials by surprise. They had their eyes open from the get-go. They are more, I gotta be softer with my hand here. They are more, they're the first generation of digital natives consumed with and shaped by social media. Their sense of identity and worth as well as their worldviews are in constant flux. Why? Because the values that come through the social media that, are, that they're inundating them are in a state of flux. I was reading Huffington Post the other day and a woman said, I was watching Frozen with my 12-year-old tween. And she turned to me wistfully and she said, I wish Walt Disney would have a chubby princess. I would feel better about myself if I could see a chubby princess. 78% of kids between the ages of 12 and 20 do not like the way they looked, wish they looked like someone else, wish they had different parents, wish they had a different life than they have. Their, their values are being, are being shaped by a celebrity-driven social media. Uh, the number one problem facing parents today f f 
from, uh, from the American Association of Psychologists is this. Not drugs, sex, all those things which we would say are problems. It is how do I get my kids off the social media? Isn't that right? Have you seen the advertisement on TV where the mother comes in and everybody around the table is on social media? And of course the mother has the little device that can turn off the social media. And of course it's just another modern example of it's the mom, not the dad, who takes control of the family issue. You walk into any Starbucks on a, on a Sunday morning or a Saturday morning, I don't walk on Sunday morning, but on a Saturday morning, and you'll see a family around a table having coffee, and every one of them will have their face in some kind of media. I was went to the booby the other day, and I saw 19 kids from a football, last fall, 19 kids from a football team, all of them sitting on the steps in a group, every one of them with their face in their face and their in their mobile device texting someone else. I was talking to a little group of girls outside the theater, and I said, why aren't you talking to each other? Why are, why are you texting your friends? They said, we're not texting our friends, we're texting each other. <laughs> I was in a restaurant not long ago, and I was drinking a cup of coffee, and I looked over the room, and there was a 30-something father with a, looked like about a 12-year-old daughter. Both of them had their face in their, across the table from each other, in their mobile device the entire time that I watched them. I got up and I walked over. I thought, should I say something? And I thought, yes, I should. <laughs> and I said to him, you know, you have a beautiful daughter. And he beamed, yes, I do. And I said, it's great to see a dad out on a date with his daughter. I used to go on dates with my daughter. Well, that's nice. And I said, but I noticed something. In the entire time you've been together, you've not said one word to each other. You've not looked at each other. I said, my daughter's now a 38-year-old lawyer in Washington, D.C., I said, I remember when we used to date. I remember those great times. I'd give anything to have them back again. Don't waste these moments. Turn off your cell phone and talk to your daughter. I didn't know what he was going to say to me, but he put it aside sheepishly. I paid my bill. I looked over my shoulder, and they were both engaged in a conversation. This generation are the digital natives they are being shaped. You think you're shaping them with an hour or two a day? You think the preacher's shaping them by a 40-minute sermon on Sunday morning? No. You can't even begin to compete with 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours of day of constant bombardment of people who are shaping them. The University of Stanford has a little bitty innocuous place called the, the Center for Pervasive Technology, run by a Dr. Fogg. He's called the father of millionaires. And he, has a, and, it, and he has a philosophy that he can shape the next generation, how they think through machines, through technological machines, through digital machines. He, he has a great view that he wants to have world peace and multiculturalism and all one religion, all one faith. And he says he's going to, eventually, these machines will be self-autonomous. Some of his students are the guy who created Instagram. He's a very powerful figure. The world's changing. We need to understand that. And so, and so is self-image. So who am I? Who will tell me who I am? Who am I? Let me go back here. I love this picture. 
Okay, let me try again. There we go. If I don't know who I am, I doubt who I am, or don't like who I am, I am more susceptible to others telling me who I am. You understand, if you don't know who you are, and if you don't like who you are, and what would you feel like if you were a millennial and you were the subject of, of late night comedian jokes all the time? And all you heard was your generation is a feckless, narcissistic, brash, stay at home with mom and dad and live off them generation. How would you feel about that? How would you feel about yourself? How would you feel if you were watching beautiful Disney princes and you were chubby? How would you feel if you're a Christian and everywhere you turn, New Yorker this last week said, Chick-fil-A is coming to New York. Creepy Christianity has invaded New York. Can you imagine the New Yorker saying, creepy Islam has invaded New York? Or creepy homosexuality or LGBT has invaded New York? They wouldn't last a second. But creepy Christianity? Did anyone watch, watch Pompeo's uh, confirmation hearing the other day when Senator Cory Booker said, if you don't believe that that gay marriage went down the list is right, then you can't be the Secretary of State and represent Americans. In effect, if you're a Christian with Christian biblical world life view, you don't belong in the game. That's where our world is going. You need to understand that. And so if I don't know, who, who will tell me? It'll be my peers, it'll be the media, it'll be my professors. Hopefully my parents, hopefully my grandparents, but more often in this world, it'll be those people. Problem with identity. So let's talk a little bit about identity in the little bit of time I have left. I'm, I'm, I'm rushing here, but let me tell you the problem with identity. I call it the Funhouse Mirror. Have you ever been to the Funhouse Mirror? When I first went to New York, I went to Coney Island, and I walked into the House of Mirrors. All those mirrors are optically flawed so that you know you stand in front of one, you're five foot tall and about five foot wide or six foot wide, or the other one you're eight feet tall and one inch wide. I like the latter one better, but um, you're flawed. You see yourself through a flawed mirror. Let me ask you this, how do you know who you are when you're born? You're born, you don't know your race, your gender, you don't know your nationality, whether you're beautiful, whether you're not, you don't know whether your family's wealthy or not, you know absolutely nothing about yourself. How do you know about yourself? How do you know what you look like? You look in a mirror. Who's the first mirror you see when you're born? You look into the face of your mother and your father. I was born out of wedlock. My mother said, had abortion been legal when you were born, you wouldn't have made it into this world. The first thing my mother said when she knew I was in her womb was, oh, blank. I think I understood that in my mother's womb. You will know who you are by how other people reflect you back to yourself. And it goes from your family to the playground, to, to co-workers, to friends, to the media. Everybody's telling you who you are and who you're not. Do you remember the first master of that? In the garden, Adam and Eve were naked, not ashamed. They felt good about themselves. And Satan came and said, you're not everything you could be. 
All of creation God has given you to enjoy, but he withheld this one part of creation from you. But if you get this one part of creation, you will be more than God tells you you are. This will give you more. The creation, this part of creation will give you more than the creator gave you. And Adam and Eve began to doubt who they were. And I tell you what, Madison Avenue has taken a page from the garden and they're doing the same thing today. They live to tell you that you are not enough, don't have enough. If you had something else, if you did something else, if you bought something else, if you changed your looks in America last year, $10 billion spent on cosmetic surgery. I live in Naples, Florida, the land of blonde Asians. You know what I mean? Not only do teenagers not like the way they look, but a recent survey found that 50% of adults don't like the way they look. And so someone will tell you who you are. And here's the problem. As Christians, we understand this. We are born in sin. We are flawed from the moment of our conception. David said, for you were born in sin, you were conceived in iniquity. That doesn't mean the conception, the act of conceiving you was sinful. It means that the people who conceived you were sinful and their sin was passed on to you and you were born flawed. And the whole world is funhouse mirrors. And people reflect back to you what is not true of you. I'm going to give you proof of that. If you have your Bibles, since this is the Sunday School Hour, turn with me to my favorite scripture, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and I will show you exactly what I'm saying. There are so many funhouse mirrors telling you what you should be and who you should be and what you're not, that after a while, if you're this generation, you don't even know who you are anymore. And you're not sure you like who you are anymore because all of the media is telling you you should be somebody else. Even at the same time, it's telling you you should love yourself for who you are. It's, 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 it's a crazy disconnect. The funhouse mirror. And I want you to look at what, what John says. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. One time he says it, then he goes on, and that is what we are. Now I want you to notice the next phrase. The reason the world doesn't know us is it did not know him. The people who are looking at you don't know who you really are. The funhouse mirrors that you are looking at to give you an accurate impression of who you are they don't know who you are why because they don't know who God is they don't know you're a child of God created in his image that you are terribly fallen but you are, ter are wonderfully loved and you have been wonderfully redeemed they don't know that and so they look at you from a worldly perspective the perspective of a flawed person with flawed understanding because he was born she was born with flaws and I want to tell you something. If you look at the funhouse mirror long enough, you will become the ultimate funhouse mirror yourself. And so you cannot trust what other people say you are, nor can you trust who you think other people are. Are you following me? Maybe that's why Jesus said, don't judge. For the measure you judge others, you will be judged. We're flawed. Do you all agree with that? I'm speaking to a Presbyterian church. We, we hold to that doctrine. 
that people are born in sin, unable to come to Christ, unable to understand the full truth. We still have something of God's image. It's twisted. It's fallen. People that aren't Christians can be wonderful. They can live wonderful moral lives, do great heroic things, but they're flawed. We all are flawed. And so how do I get my identity? That's how I get my identity. Don't you like that? There's a different mirror we look into. We look into the mirror of Christ. And I may be the little kitty cat, but when I look into the mirror, I see the lion of the tribe of Judah. My self-image is, is not a self-image. I hate the word self-image. My image is a Christ image. He tells me who I am. He tells me what I can be. When I look at him, Paul puts it another way in 2 Corinthians 3, 17, and beholding his glory, we are transformed from glory to glory to glory. Isn't that wonderful? We look more and more like him as we get, become more like him. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. That's who I am. That's who identifies who I am. That's who I want to grow up to be. Paul said, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I just don't want to know him. I want to have his power in me. I want to even share in the fellowship of his sufferings. If suffering with him will make me know him better, I, I'm willing to suffer. And, and when I die, I want to be like him in his death. I want to be able to say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I want to be able to say, not my will, but your will be done. Isn't that cool? And I can become more like him if I, if I focus on him. Here's the problem. And, and so he says again, dear friends, now we are. Did you notice he says that three times? We are the children of God, verse 1. That is what we are. And then he comes back and says, dear friends, now we are the children of God. He has to say it three times. I will tell you after being a pastor for 40 years, I will tell you this. The hardest thing that Christians have is not getting over individual sins and individual Bad habits, the hardest, or getting the right theology, the hardest issue for Christians is really coming to know and to understand and to feel existentially that they truly are loved by God no matter what. If I have the best day I've ever had in my life, God will not love me any more than he did before the world was created. If I have the worst day I've ever had in my life, he will not love me any less than he did when Christ died for me on the cross. Isn't that good to know? And we have such a hard time with that. And, and then he says, what we will be has not yet been made known. We don't know whether we're going to be rich, poor, we're going to be here or there. But we do know this, when we appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he's already pure. In other words, God already sees me as pure. I need to get to that point where I become what he already sees me to be. Isn't that beautiful? And he has to tell us three times because we have such a hard time with that. So what is the core of our identity? This is so beautiful. I saw this when I saw the baptism of Jesus. If you will go with me to Israel, we will be at that spot where the ancient Jews circumcised themselves at Gilgal when they crossed over the Jordan uh, 10 miles from Jericho. And then John the Baptist came to that same place out of the wilderness uh, baptizing people in the ancient purification rites for forgiveness of sins. Jesus showed up. And his cousin said, I'm not worthy to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And then he said, I baptize with water, but he will baptize with fire. 
and Jesus was baptized, and he came out of the water. You remember that wonderful moment when the, dove, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, came upon him, and that voice came from heaven, his father. And what did he say? This is my son. I identify my son. Can I tell you, fathers and grandfathers, though it's important, and some of you are single moms, and so you have to be the one to do that, but dads are the most important people to say to young men and young women, to young boys and young girls, this is who you are. You are my son. You're not just another Jewish prophet. You're not just a would-be Messiah. You're not just a great teacher. This is my son, very God of very God, begotten, not made. This is my son. And Jesus will have that challenge the moment he leaves and is driven to the wilderness by Satan who will say, you're not that. And the rest of his life, the church and the state will try to dismantle that. And Jesus, though he is fully God in his flesh, will have to remember as he is a human in those terrible times when he turns to his disciples after 6,000 people have left him, when he preached a sermon they didn't want to hear about taking his body and his blood. And he said, will you too leave me? That anguish when he said to his disciples that night, when he said, my heart is overwhelmed to the point of death. I'm so depressed, I'd rather die tonight than face the cross tomorrow. And he came back to his friends and said, couldn't you have stayed with me for just an hour? You feel the pain that you felt when you've been, the pain of being betrayed, of being, of being denied. But Jesus had to remember all the time, I'm God. So let me ask you this, do your sons and daughters, your grandchildren, do they know who they are? Because I guarantee you, a whole world of social media, of professors, of teachers will try to, and peers will try to tell them, you are not who you are. And secondly, in whom I am well pleased. I not only know who my son is and tell you who he is, but I'm well pleased with him. Do your children, your grandchildren know that you are well pleased with them? When they mess up, you're still well pleased with them. I used to say to Rachel, Daddy always loves you. Sometimes he loves you with a happy love. Sometimes he loves you with a sad love. But he always loves you. And so I want to just share this scene. Do you remember this scene from The Gladiator? Why doesn't the hero reveal himself and tell us all your real name? You do have a name. My name is Gladiator. How dare you show your back to me? Slave! Will you remove your helmet and tell me your name? My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions. Loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius. Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife. And I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Now, you may not agree with his purpose in life to have vengeance, but he has a purpose and he knows who he is. Do your children know who they are? Do you keep telling them who they are? 
Every study shows today that Generation Z, particularly, but also the millennial generation, when asked who are the favorite people in your life, they repeat it at an 80% mark, my grandparents. Isn't that incredible? I know why. Parents have one job, to tell their kids they're messing up, to tell them they better straighten up and fly right. Grandparents have one job, to tell their grandkids they're the most wonderful people in the world, and grandma and grandma loves you no matter what. So you ask me, who would you rather hang out with? <laughs> and I want to, I, I would love to go on. I don't have time because I don't want to interrupt the next service. Uh, I was going to show you the scene with Commodus. Where Commodus, the evil empire, it's the saddest scene in the movie. Some of them go on YouTube or watch this movie again. When his fa father says, you're not going to be the emperor of Rome because you're not good enough. We're going to go back to the Republic. And he begins to weep, and he said, all I ever wanted is for you to love me. All I ever wanted was you to tell me that I was worthy and good enough. And his father, you remember, Marcus Rue, gets on his knees and says, it's my fault as your father that you're not better than you are. And remember how he takes him and he hugs him and he smothers him to death. And there are a lot of ways that young kids who have not received the affirmation that they need and love from their parents, there's a lot of ways they smother their parents and kill their parents. And so I want to go on. And that's the secret. I believe that we have a legacy. And I want to begin to wrap things up. I wish I had time to tell you my story. Born of a, born of a, of a woman who looked for love in all the wrong places. She found out she was pregnant when she was 15, went home to her father. He threw her out of the house. She wandered the streets. She gave birth to a little no-name boy. She'd had relations with so many men, she didn't know who the father was. To this day, I don't know who my father was. She snagged an Air Force um, guy, moved out to, the, to Larson Air Force Base in eastern Washington. He was gone in Korea and in Germany. She looked for love again in all the wrong places, had five more kids by five different men. She was often gone for weeks at a time, at the bars, drunk, in a gutter somewhere. I was the one who took care of my five brothers and sisters. But it was even worse when she came home, because often she brought men home with her. I was sodomized repeatedly. I was used in her sexual games. I felt as if I needed to do this to please my mother, and yet I felt dirty at the same time and worthless at the same time. The authorities took over eventually, and I spent the next six years in eight foster homes from age six to age 12. In that time, I, I, um, I watched my foster father in one home in a drunken fit beat my foster mother to death with a hammer. That's an image that'll stay with you the rest of your life. I went to bed every night. I, ha I had a mother who put a, a, a sign on me, and she had painted across it, this little boy wets the bed every night and stood me on the porch next to the school, and all my classmates went by. I had never felt more ashamed in my life. When I was in the sixth grade, having been through eight foster homes, they wrote on my report card, this little boy needs to be institutionalized. He'll never amount to anything. I've often thought of framing that and hanging it next to my doctoral certificate. I was a messed up kid. I wish I could tell you the story of Arnold and Mary, the fishermen, I, as I shared Friday night uh, with a, group of, a large group of people. But I would like to tell you how, how two people came into my life, a fisherman who owned a fleet of fishing boats and his wife who couldn't have a child. 
and how they loved me. The first time I ever heard the words, I love you, was when Mary pulled me off the porch that day in Christmas of 59, buried my head in a rather ample bosom. I thought I was going to suffocate to death, the most delicious suffocation of my life. And Mary said, I love you. For the first time in my life, I heard those words. Later that day, Arnold said, would you like to be my son? And here comes the pastor. It's time to wrap up. And, and, and what I want to do today, and, and God has changed my life. Are you here to help me? Or? He's got to still preach. I'm so sorry. My, so that's my story. I wish I had more time. Ask people that were there Friday night. And I won't do that. I have to skip through a lot of stuff. But I want to tell you how I'd like to help you. And you come to the table out there. First of all, I've come up with a way that you, as grandparents, can write the story of, your, of five generations of your family in a very easy-to-read, exciting book for your children, telling the qualities of, of their ancestors that are wrapped up into their DNA. And then talk about that great story that they're part of. And then that's next year. You can sign up out here in Santa Fe. It's going to be a great conference. Uh, the book of amazing stories to learn how to do those stories. And then I want to tell you about Israel. We're do, putting together tour groups this November. We still have a few spots left. We're asking grandparents and parents to take their children to these places, to begin to teach them about who they are and wh what their heritage is. And so you can sign up for that. Scotland, how the Scots invented America, the Presbyterian Heritage Tour. Uh, Greece, the Great Awakening, and I've got to quit. <laughs> but I hope one thing that comes out of this today, and I close with this, what's the riddle? What's the um, value of a five-inch bar of steel? All depends on whose hand it is and for what purpose it's being made. If it's being made in a fishing hook, it's worth about $25. If you take that same steel and make it into a knife blade, it's worth about $2,500. Use that same steel to make intricate springs for Swiss watches, for Rolex watches. It's worth $250,000. What's the value of a person? The same answer. It depends on whose hands they're in and for what purpose they're being created. I want to challenge you that you cannot as older people particularly, you cannot go into playing golf and go into the horse races. That's okay for a little bit. But what you've got to do is give the rest of your life to shaping those children in the next generation. If you aren't grandparents and you're young parents, do that. If you're single people, begin to prepare yourself to shape children from the future. Matt, you have anything to say as I close? No. Just go to church. God bless you. <laughs>